0: On the everlasting. Presence to remember who He is and what He's done. To do that through song, through uh, sharing communion shortly, and through a sermon, through God's Word, among other ways and means that God has given us to worship Him. So it's good to be together. My name is Paul Buckley. Welcome. If you're new here, we're so glad you're here. We pray God's blessing on you. We are in a series on the church. We're normally in series in books of the Bible. We make our way through the different books of Scripture because the Word of God is exactly that, the Word of God. And so we feature that, but at times it's helpful to address certain topics from the Word of God. So we're addressing the the church and looking at different aspects of the church. So today I want to talk about the church's power. Uh, We'll look at Matthew 28 and other places. And to start off, just to ask a question, what are the most powerful organizations, institutions, and so forth uh, in history? I think when we think about powerful organizations, powerful uh, institutions, we usually think of countries, right, and empires. So the most powerful empires would be, well, there's a number of them, but maybe the Roman Empire, one of the most powerful empires ever. At its zenith, it covered over two million square miles, encompassing over a third of the world's population, and seemed to be able to conquer any country it wished. Maybe if uh, you expand the parameters outside just the Western world, you would think the Han Dynasty, which actually was larger, uh, more land, more people than the Roman Empire, and it was around the same time in history as well, covered uh, a third or more than a third of the people of the world. Maybe the British Empire. The grand uh, British Empire, covering spanning 13 million square miles. Uh, The sun never set on the British Empire, as they say, encompassing a quarter of the world's population. Maybe you think of America, though not matching those other empires in land or population, but exceeding them in wealth and military might and productivity. Those are some of the most powerful empires. But let me ask, why do we typically think of governments or the state as the most powerful things in history? Uh, Maybe because we can see that it's more obvious to us up front and, uh, and tangible, maybe that's why. But I think we are wrong if we think some country or government is the most powerful institution. The Bible clearly teaches us that the church as a whole and the sum of its parts is by far the most powerful human institution on earth. That's what I uh, am submitting to you, that the word teaches today. And I want to take you on a journey to look at scripture, and discover this truth and apply it. I think there's lots of application we can make from this truth. But first, let's pray. Let's ask God to help us see this and understand it and apply it. So Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your ministry to us. Uh, This little church uh, in this big world, you care about us among all your churches, all your local churches, and we thank you for that. That you are actually very interested in us gathering today and each of us encountering you. So I pray, Lord, help me to teach and proclaim faithfully and I pray, Lord, uh, that through this, we would hear you, and we would be changed by you and your word. We would experience you and your ways, and we would be different going out of this place today than when we came in. We need you, we thank you that you are all glorious, and you're so kind and humble and faithful, so teach us, uh, confront us, guide us, transform us, and glorify your worthy name. Through this we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Look with me first at Matthew 28, a well-known passage. And it says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age." This scripture and many others teach us clearly um, that the church is the most powerful institution on earth and it is given power from Jesus. The church is the most powerful institution on earth. It's given power from Jesus to open and close eternally significant doors. So that's the statement. I think we have that to project uh, as the key statement. That's what I want to teach from. That's what I want to establish. Those are my points. So I want to first talk about The reality that this power is from Jesus, and then second that it's given to us, and then third and fourth, we open and close eternally significant doors. That may seem abstract, but I trust as we go through it, uh, it'll make sense to you and be very practical. So first, and most importantly, the power that we have as the church, as part of the whole church, is from Jesus. This is the right place to start. Power comes from Jesus. It's not a power that's inherent in the church. It's not a power that's of humanity, mere humanity. It's a power given by and from Christ and ultimately for Christ. That qualifies this power and our understanding of it in such an important and essential way. We don't get to define and use this power however we choose. It's defined According to Scripture, it's from Jesus. It's delegated and delimited power. So it's given from Jesus, and the parameters of it are defined by Jesus in His Word. It has boundaries and purposes and accountability. Sadly, the church throughout the ages has at times failed greatly in grasping this, failed greatly in understanding the nature of power and its exercise, its use, And it wouldn't be an exaggeration, I don't think, to say that the root of all the wars of religion, particularly uh, the wars and persecution during the Reformation and the Counter-Reformation, so so that's the 15th and 16th century, uh, had at its root this misunderstanding of the power of the church, the the nature and the exercise of its power. And I'm sure we're all aware of that. I'm an Irish-American, very aware, painfully aware of this failure on both sides of the conflict. And I would want you to know, by the way, that, that the Western Church, as a whole, so under the Nicene Creed, all those who profess the truth of the Nicene Creed, uh, no longer thinks like they did back in the fifteenth and sixteenth and seventeenth centuries. That's important to state. And I can, uh, you know, after this, if you have questions, I'd love to point you to those documents that actually define a, a new and better understanding according to the Word of the nature of the power of the church and how it's exercised. Thankfully, the painful lessons of those centuries have been fairly well-heeded at this point in time. Nevertheless, the point being, we must ground ourselves in the power of Christ and understand that this is given from Christ. So I think it's important for us to understand uh, the power of Christ, the authority of Christ. And these two things go together, of course. Authority, uh, the ability to, to be and do certain things connected to power. So, to understand the power and authority of Christ, and and to uh, look a little bit first at the passage we just looked at, Matthew 28. Our opening passage teaches us that all authority, and therefore all power with that, it's connected in heaven and on earth, has been given Christ. So, how much power has been given Jesus? All authority, all power over all heaven and earth. How expansive? heaven and earth, all of creation. So this is basically limitless authority, limitless power to do as he pleases. Then the next question is, well, how and why and when was it given to Christ? Those are good questions I think important to understand. Um, And so let's just look at a few verses. I'll look at a lot more verses today than I normally would just to take you through this topic. Well, first, this power is promised to Jesus, promised to the Son of Man. Daniel chapter 7, Daniel says, "...I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a Son of Man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him." His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and His kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is speaking of Jesus. The promise that He would have such dominion, such authority, such power. Philippians chapter 2 explains the how this happened. How, how, what was the process? And why does He now have the power? Chapter 2, verses 5-11. to 11, Paul is speaking to believers actually and calling them to 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 serve one another and to not be in conflict but love and serve like Jesus and so he cites Jesus here in Philippians chapter 2 verse 5 he says have this mind among yourselves which is which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. How did this happen? How was He awarded such power and authority? Through His faithfulness in His death. His faithfulness in His humiliation. His faithfulness in serving others. His faithfulness in laying His life down for His beloved, for His people. His faithfulness in going to that cross. Obeying the Father. Loving the Father. Loving His people to the point of going to the cross and being crucified. Not only facing the physical pain of that, but the spiritual torment of bearing our sins on Himself. He who knew no sin became sin for us. So that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. This amazing exchange. This humble God-man taking on Himself our sin, dying to atone for our sins, to pay the just price. For the wages of sin is death. To sin against God brings spiritual death. It it rightly must do that because it's a sin and offense against God that breaks our relationship with God. And life is only found in God. And yet Christ, in His great love for us and the Father, and the Father's love sending the Son for us, He bore that sin on the cross, in our place, To remove that offense, to pay for it completely, to atone for our sins, and offer that righteous life in our stead so that the Father, through Christ, could forgive us and treat us even as he treats the very Son of God. And all we need to do in that is behold and receive. Of course, in that we must turn away from self and sin. We truly are not receiving and beholding it if we don't, but we must do that. But we simply behold and receive that amazing gift, and in that, it changes everything. And so Jesus did this, and therefore God exalted him. He he was faithful. His exaltation was not just that he is God himself. Of course he has all authority and power as God himself, but he's the God-man. And God had a plan for his creation and for history For Jesus to be victorious in this way, demonstrating perfect humanity, what mankind was meant to be like, he fulfilled completely in all that Philippians 2 describes. And therefore God exalted him to the highest place, that he might rule over all things, that he might have all authority and power. And so this is how it happened. Paul wants us to understand in chapter 1 of Ephesians. He says, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you my prayers. Then he says that you may know, and then he describes what that that is in verse 19. What is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might, so that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. So this power, this authority that Christ has, as we saw in Matthew 28, but we see it here in Ephesians 1, is not just Christ's power, but it's Christ's power for us. He delegates this power. He grants it to us in Him. So we have this power from Christ by what He did. This is what's amazing, right? We didn't do this. We failed, and yet He was faithful, and He's exalted. And when we come to Him and belong to Him, now this power and this authority is available to us. It's from Him. He delegates this to us. He earned it. And then he gives it to us. He grants it to us. In him we have such authority. And so that's why he says in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. What an audacious thing to try to do. Our world says, how can you as Christians be so audacious? How can you be so exclusive? How can you think that somehow people who are, seem to be perfectly fine need Jesus? How can you say these things? And we don't point to ourselves in answering that. We point to Jesus. He told us this. He's the one who who has overcome all things, sin and death. He's the one who has all authority in heaven and earth. He's the one who's reigning and ruling now, despite what you might think about the values of culture and who gets to say what? He gets to say what? We take our orders from him. It's not about us. Talk to Jesus. Your contention is with him. All authority in heaven and earth has been given Jesus, and he therefore commissions us, he tells us, go make disciples of all nations. In other words, conquer the whole world. Conquer every worldview. Conquer every culture that's foreign to the ways of God. In any aspect. Conquer every aspect of your own life, right? That doesn't comply with his kingship. He is to rule and reign over all things. He does rule and reign, but he uses the church to extend that practically. And so we can be audacious not because we have it in ourselves, but because of Jesus. This is the reality. Now, we realize people do resist the truth. Circumstances may seem to say otherwise at times about the reign of Christ. The devil's activity may seem a contradiction to this. We look around and we see the enemies of Jesus at work, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But this is a truth, as I read in Revelation 5 and 4. Jesus is ruling over heaven and earth right now to bring about his perfect purposes, to even use the plots and plans and the evil of his enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, to accomplish his eternally determined and all-wise purposes. These three enemies will bow finally and fully to Jesus. And we do indeed get to experience this power in real ways now. You are all here, if you are a believer, because of Jesus' great power. You have experienced something that is the greatest miracle any human can ever experience. To actually become a new creation, to be raised from the dead. We might think about the wonder of being physically raised from the dead. Every believer has been spiritually raised from the dead. You have been brought from death to life. And you are alive forevermore in Jesus. You have new life. You are a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. You are all miracles and demonstrations of the power of Jesus to totally transform lives. Each one of you. All of your ability... To believe in Jesus, all of your ability to obey Him, all of your ability to stay close to Him, all comes from Him, from His power and His authority in your life. You are a beloved and powerful trophy of the incredible power of Jesus. Each one of you. Don't ever forget that. Jesus demonstrates His power, not only in that way, which is most significant certainly for us, Greatest miracle to have new life, to be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, to have our eyes opened. Thank you, Lord. But He continues to demonstrate His power in other ways through the conquest of the devil and His min- minions as well. They cannot stand before Jesus and the power of the gospel. They cannot. Life after life, village after village throughout the globe, Jesus is demonstrating His power over the devil. I've seen it. Perhaps you've seen it. I imagine you have. First hand, and I've heard about many power encounters with demonic forces Secondhand, A friend of mine told me about his experience. He was uh, a wild person, um, had run-ins with the police, heavy drinking, ran with the boys, and was opposed to the things of God, but his wife was a believer. And so he would go to church at times with her, and every time they preached about Jesus, and particularly when they talked about the blood of Christ, shed for sinners. He would feel this great evil in him and this, this, this force that he wasn't aware of previously that, that was just causing hatred and, and angst in him. It's, these were demons at work in his life afflicting him and controlling him. And eventually uh, he allowed people to pray for him and they prayed and they cast out the demons from him. And he was a different person. Gave his life to Christ. And this brother is a faithful, fruit believer, fruitful believer to this day. And he continues, Jesus continues to do this in conquering the, the devil in, in many ways. And I take time to just tell stories the whole time. He continues to do this. He continues to extend his power and transforming the culture as well. To, so these are his enemies, right? The, the flesh, the devil, and the world. He works to, to conquer cultures, Families and villages and even whole cultures are being transformed by the truth of the gospel. Now, we live in the West, and we kind of see things waning, the influence of the gospel waning, and we may panic and think, oh, no, what's going to happen? Uh, Spurgeon tells the story, uh, the metaphor of somebody watching the tide go out and panicking. Oh, no, the water's going to disappear from the earth. What are we going to do? Sometimes we're like that. We're watching the tide go out in the West, and we think there's no progress. But throughout the world... Outside the West, and even in the West as well, but outside the West, in Asia, Latin America, and the Muslim world, we are seeing things happen beyond the wildest dreams of the missionaries of the last century. Lives and cultures even being transformed. So continue to pray. Jesus is using his power to bring great change. So this power is in Jesus. He has authority. He is ruling. He is reigning. He's exercising that power. That power is given to us, though. We saw that in Matthew 28, but I want to look at two other verses and talk about particular aspects of the power. Matthew chapter 16 and Matthew chapter 18. Let me read these and then we'll, we'll talk about them. First, Matthew 16, 18 through 19. Jesus says, after Peter has rightfully confessed who he is, rightfully confessed really the gospel, he says, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Matthew sixteen eighteen through 19. Matthew 18, Jesus is teaching. It says, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Both these passages are the only two places in Matthew where the word church is mentioned. And both places speak of binding and loosing. Before we get into that, I'll explain these things. I want you to note, though, the use of the word keys in Matthew 16. Peter is told, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. I think this is a really important word and idea and concept that is repeated in Scripture, not necessarily by the word itself, but through the concept, that helps us understand the nature of the power of the church. We are given power from Jesus, and this power is communicated to us through the metaphor of keys. So what is meant by keys? Well, keys are used throughout Scripture in similar ways. Luke chapter 11, Jesus says, "'Woe to you, lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge.'" You did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. Jesus is speaking really of the key to the kingdom of heaven. For people to get into the kingdom of heaven. To come to this place of being reconciled with God. And brought into his family part of the kingdom. And he's telling the lawyers. So those are religious lawyers. They're religious experts. You've taken away the key of knowledge. You've, you've taken away this important key that would allow people to get into heaven. And you yourselves have not entered. Revelation chapter 1 It says, when I saw him, speaking of Jesus, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, fear not, I am the first and the last, and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has the keys of death and Hades. He determines who gets in, who gets let out, in regards to death and Hades. He is the one, not someone else, not some other spiritual force. Jesus himself, the one who has died and is now alive forevermore, therefore has the keys to death and Hades. Revelation 3, the words of the Holy One, the true one, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, who shuts and no one opens. This is the key of David, the king, who opens and shuts as the king over his Kingdom. So, circling back to Matthew 16, when Jesus says to Peter, I, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, this is what he's saying. He's given the ability to open and shut eternally significant doors. Now, because of our history, I have to address the question that might be there. Does this mean that Peter is the first pope? of the Roman Catholic Church and the Roman Catholic Church, the Pope in particular determines who gets into heaven, I would say no, this passage is not about Peter as Pope, but about Peter as the first faithful confessor among the apostles of the truth about Christ and the call he and the other apostles had along with the whole church to faithfully proclaim Christ. Yes, indeed, Peter is first among equals among the apostles. And Jesus, indeed, is using him and commissioning him to build the church. Those things are true. We don't need to deny those things in order to try to to undermine the false claim of Peter as Pope. But the passage just simply isn't about this. That assertion is unnatural in terms of history, certainly, but also contextually in this passage. If you're going to create a doctrine of Petrine papacy, maybe you should create a doctrine of Petrine apostasy because shortly after this, Peter is going to be rebuked and, and told that he's Satan because he's opposing the truth of the gospel. So it just doesn't fit in the context to say such a thing. It's only because of history. It's been asserted. That's not what this passage is about. And we, we mustn't miss the important point the idea that peter and the church peter as part of the whole church is given the keys of the kingdom to open and shut doors and so the church as a whole holds the keys and i can say it's the whole church not just peter because the parallel passage we read in matthew 18 it doesn't mention peter it mentions who the church And he says, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. He's saying this about the whole church. And the particular context, we'll we'll touch on it shortly, in Matthew 18, is the discipline of the church, the whole church. Indeed, within that are officers doing their appropriate roles. But it is the whole church exercising the power of the keys, the power to bind and loose, the power to, to act in heaven's name in ways to open eternally significant doors or close them. Sometimes that passage, by the way, in Matthew 18 is used for fellowship. It says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. But this isn't speaking of fellowship, though that's true. Certainly, Christ is among us as we fellowship. But this is about exercising authority and power in Matthew 18. And when you do that, according to the word, according to these things, Jesus is there with you, the two or three, to exercise authority that's eternally significant. That's what's being said here. And in this passage, the two or three are gathered in Christ's name. They are the authoritative witnesses to the guilt of the unrepentant one. And therefore, must pronounce a judgment on that person for the sake of their redemption and the glory of God. The keys are to open and shut doors. uh, It speaks of binding and loosing here. That's another thing that's misunderstood. Uh, You saw in Matthew 16 Matthew 18 in both places, right? Uh, It says, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And some people understand this in a name it, claim it way, right? So I'm going to bind and loosen things in the heavenlies uh, just by somehow some uh, power and authority arbitrary uh, to me. But that's not the context. This is speaking of the church operating in ways with the authority of Christ to bind things. So that's to restrict things. To say, no, this... This person can't go here, can't be here, can't be part of this one. Or to loose things, saying, yes, be loose, be released, so that you are free now to be somewhere. That's the idea. So you may be wondering, okay, I'm kind of getting the keys, I'm getting the binding and loosing, I'm getting the doors, but what, what exactly do these doors mean? Too many metaphors, Paul, help me here. Well, first off, let me say what the opening of doors is. And I wouldn't be presenting this if it were just Matthew 16 and 18. Scripture takes these metaphors and fills out what they mean. So first, what does to open the door mean? Well, in the context, in Matthew 16, Peter has rightfully confessed Christ. It's that whole dialogue maybe you're familiar with. They say, who, Jesus says, who do you say that I am? Who do people say that you that I am, who do you say that I am? And and Simon Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I give you the keys of heaven. And so forth. So the context here is the rightful proclamation, the rightful understanding and proclamation of who Christ is. That's the context here. And that's why Jesus says, I'll build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail, because you have the keys, actually, to let people out of hell. To open the door, to loose people from their chains of sin, and their place of of rebellion, to loose them. But how? How does this work? Well, it happens through this, the proclamation of the gospel. And the Scriptures fill out this reality that the church is the steward of the gospel. We hold the key. The key is the truth of the gospel. Proclaimed and dem- the fruit of the gospel demonstrated by us to, to back up the truth as well. We hold that key. And so we see this throughout Scripture. Acts chapter 1, when, when the disciples are thinking. We saw this last week. Where they're wondering, are you going to bring the kingdom now? And Jesus says, well, let me let me... Let me give you your assignment for the kingdom now. It's not to restore Israel as you've thought. That's certainly part of the plan here. He says, It is not for you to know the times or seasons regarding the restoration of Israel if the Father has fixed by His own authority, but you will see power when the Holy Spirit come, comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, and Judea, and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. In other words, I've got a kingdom for you to build through the proclamation of the truth of Christ as you go to all the nations and proclaim Christ's teach the truth. This will unlock doors and churches will be planted and built. And so that's what they go on to do. Matthew 28, the same thing. You've seen that. Romans 1. This is why Paul says in Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel for it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. This is the most powerful thing we can experience spiritually and physically as well. That follows the truth of the gospel, the good news of Christ crucified and risen. And the change that that brings, it changes everything. It's the most powerful thing we could experience. Paul continues in this line Second Corinthians chapter 10. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. This is the operation of the the power of the key of the truth of the gospel. 1 Timothy 3 says, I hope to come to you soon, but I'm writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, in the church. And then he says this about the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. The church is a pillar and buttress of the truth, a place that stewards the truth, that holds the keys, that proclaims Christ, that experiences the truth of the gospel itself, but also makes that gospel known and therefore loosens people so that they might be added to the church. Similarly, Jesus says to the apostles in John 20, Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. When he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Wow. That's power. Does this mean that there's some sort of magical ability that the apostles or the church, really, the extension is to the whole church, has? Does this mean we have some sort of priestly power to actually determine forgiveness or not in and of ourselves? No. The power is from Jesus. And the power comes to us through the power of the gospel. And so if we preach the gospel, if we rightly live in it and demonstrate the fruit of it faithfully as we proclaim it to others, as we proclaim it to one another certainly as well, but to the world, people hear it and they are forgiven. And if we withhold forgiveness, if we use the key to close the door, it's withheld. We'll talk about that shortly. The church is the most powerful institution in the world Because it has the power to open the doors to eternal life, full reconciliation with the living God, and thus build the everlasting kingdom of God. There is no greater power among the institutions of men than the power of the church. When you think about power, you again think about nations, right? Maybe you think about the power of three nations right now that have huge nuclear arsenals, China, Russia, and the U.S., and if you know a little bit about it you know more or less that the leaders of these countries have the ability to press a button if they want yeah there's some safeguards there and so forth but but more or less they have the ability to press a button and maybe destroy the world with nuclear warfare that seems like a lot of power doesn't it and it certainly would unleash great destruction but it doesn't unleash everlasting destruction only physical the button we all have at our fingertips unleashes everlasting salvation and everlasting rescue from eternal destruction my brothers and sisters i hope you hear this and i have my own soul as well there is nothing more powerful not even nuclear launch capacity than the power of the church in the gospel there is no greater power in the hands of any institutional person on earth than the power of the church to open doors through the power of the gospel. Secondly, we have power to close doors. This is what's being said in Matthew 18, certainly implied in Matthew 16 as well, in the binding and loosing, confirmed by all of Scripture, in many places, specific references. So back to Matthew 18 Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two, were, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. This is about the power to close doors. This is about church discipline. Let me quickly take you through, uh, through this. And we, we as a church have documents and actually uh, in our members class coming up soon, we'll go through this. But just quickly, there are four steps here. First, if your brother sins against you, tell him his fault. Between you and him alone, if he listens, you have gained your brother. That's the first step. It should be a regular, fairly regular part of life, and then this verse goes in parallel with all the other ways that we interact with each other. First off, encouraging, right? Exhorting each other, loving each other, helping each other so that we aren't hardened by sin. But sometimes there'll be things that go on, patterns, and especially destructive sins that must be confronted, but we're to confront privately and confidentially and carefully. There's a lot that we can talk about with that. We we'll won't talk now. That's the first step. The second, if he doesn't listen, you take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. So the next step is to establish this person's guilt. Within our denomination, Trinity Fellowship Churches, we practice this by including pastors here. That's a wise practice. We want to follow. So that the two or three will establish, are these charges legit? And therefore, what should we do? And given that they are, then that, there's another appeal to the brother or sister Just to repent, to run back to Jesus, to run away from their sin, to find in Him power, and certainly all the help we can bring. So this is all redemptive. But then if the person continues to refuse, you tell it to the church. So that's, that means you involve a broader group of people who know that person, who love that person, who have the data and the awareness to address that serious issue in a redemptive way, to make appeals. And then finally, if the person still refuses now with the whole church, then he must be treated as a non-believer and non-member of the church. Now that doesn't mean cutting off relationships, that doesn't mean failing or stopping to love and respect that person, but to understand that this person is behaving as one who would deny the truth of Christ. And love means we must confront that appropriately. And it's meant to be redemptive. For a genuine believer, they will respond, actually, at one of these steps, even if it's after the fourth step. Because a genuine believer has in them a new life. And the discipline that God brings through this will, will, will drive them back. Paul talks about elsewhere, about turning people over to Satan truth there is that when someone is turned over in that fourth step, they're no longer under the same sort of protection that comes when you're part of a local church. And they're going to be subject as a believer to temptation and struggles. And that's meant to drive them back to Jesus. So a genuine believer will respond, but someone who's not a genuine believer will ignore that and be on on my way. And so the church in this way closes the door. Says, well, this person's not a believer. And that's what Jesus is saying. When you Bind things on earth, they're bound in heaven. So that, there's a reality here that's very sobering, right? That that when the church acts this way to close the door with the key, heaven itself is behind that. Now, it's not an absolute way and so forth. There's qualifiers indeed. It has to be according to Scripture and truth and all that. But but nevertheless, it's a, a, a powerful thing that the church does. It's Jesus himself. Jesus says, when two or three are gathered in my name... In closing the door, I am among them. So picture Jesus, holy, mighty Jesus, closing that door on that brother or sister. For the sake of their redemption, yes. But that's what's going on. It's very sobering. And it's good for us. And we'll be talking about this in membership, and you're probably thinking, I'm not going to go to that class. But the flip side of all this, of course, is all the blessing and all the help and all the ways that the Lord is glorified as a church and all of its weakness comes together to walk in the gospel. And if we are genuine followers, we want the protection that comes from others encouraging us, helping us. We want the use of our gifts and the fruitfulness that's there. And if the day comes that we wander and don't respond. We want others to love us enough to do something about it. According to scripture. Not according to their whims, but according to scripture. So I would encourage you to, to be part of the members class. And if you want to look in this further, I think I have a slide with cross references. So there's lots of these. I can send this to you later. If you could project that slide. It has a bunch of, there you go. A bunch of cross references. So you're not thinking like, Pastor Paul got this out of just one passage. It's throughout scripture. But there's this reality of closing the door. And so, to sum up, the church is the most powerful institution on earth. We are given power from Christ to close doors that are eternally significant. We are given power from the risen Christ to open doors that are eternally significant. This is the power that we have as the church. Therefore, the church is indeed the most powerful institution among men mankind. And so in conclusion, let me ask, what does this mean for us? Well, I think it means a lot of things. And I think of this, um, when we encounter something very powerful, there are always implications for us to think about, right? If you have something powerful, whatever, you could have a, a spray washer. It's a powerful spray washer, right? You encounter a spray washer, you have to think certain things about that spray washer, don't you? Am I aware of how powerful this is? I hope you are. Before you start spraying stuff that you shouldn't? Am respect? Am I respectful of the power? We have the, these questions that to list, to project. So, Am I respectful of the power? Next slide. Yeah. Here we go, thanks. Uh, am I trained in the safe use of this power? Before you start using your spray washer, you better know what to do. Am I using this power properly? Am I accomplishing something good with this power? In other words, I should be cleaning the deck versus Ruining my brother's car. Do I need help wielding the power? Am I putting this power to maximum use? These are the sorts of questions we always naturally ask. You you may not think through these consciously, but that's what you're doing when you have something powerful in your hands. You have the most powerful. You're part of having the most powerful thing any human could have in your very hands. You're part of the church. And so I'm sure at least one of these seven questions apply to each one of us. And so I just want to close this way, trusting that God's spoken to you through his word. Pick one of these and say, Lord, help me. And by the way, we want to help you. We realize that we need to grow as a whole church and as pastors in these things as well. We're learning, we're growing, we do this together. We want to help you as well. So there are probably concrete questions that you have that Pastor Toby and I would love to answer. Not right now, but at some point. But why don't you just take a minute right now to pray and ask the Lord give you insights, consider one way that you can apply this reality that the church is the most powerful institution among men